I saw the whole deaf and dumb school healed on mats. And I turned around and I saw their teachers crying because they'd lost their job now. Joy is actually a skill. Contentment is actually a skill. These things come out of maturity. What I would say to my younger self, there is a life available for more joy and more meaning and more adventure and more satisfaction, but it's a life that you cannot get independently. Howdy folks, Blaine here with the And Sons podcast. I thought it would be appropriate for me to record the intro to this one because as you'll see in this following episode... Sam is in and out. That is because we were on the road. We were taking care of some equipment sales relating to some Anson's film projects. And it was the window that we had to line up with Mako or Makoto Fujimura. So, fair warning. This one, because of the fact that we were not in our studio, you have some funky audio from us, my are popping, uh, despite a good edit. And uh, Mako, you know, coming to us digitally, there's a, there's some audio funkiness. Don't let that throw you. I, I think it took me a minute or two to get used to it in this episode, and then you'll just have the benefit of a pretty remarkable interview with Makoto Fujimura. Who is Mako Fujimura? Oh my goodness. Who is he not? He is an internationally renowned artist. He works in in the United States and in Japan in a style called Nihonga, which dates back to medieval Japan. It's painting with mineral pigments, each of which is a prism. Many of his paintings have up to 60 layers. But increasingly, over the course of his career, he has become a spokesperson in the world of art, in the world of culture care, He writes on the intersection of art, creativity, crisis, culture. He also works out of Fuller Theological Seminary over there in California, where he mentors students and takes sort of stewards in art interdisciplinary program there. When he's not traveling the world for art openings and shows and opportunities to actually contribute in a very meaningful leadership way to the global conversation of what art does. So lots of thoughts here on the way that art relates to suffering, on what it means to see like an artist, even if you do not identify as an artist, what it means to open the eyes of your heart, to structure your life, to be able to increasingly occupy your time. This is a conversation I'd been excited to have for a really long time. No further ado, here is our conversation with Mako Fujimura. Enjoy it. Mako, thank you so much for coming on the Anson's podcast. It's an honor to have you. Some of our audience, I know because I meet with them, know who you are, and we're pretty thrilled that we would have the opportunity to ask you some questions about your life and art and work. But for the segment that doesn't, rather than looking far into the backstory, I just love sort of an illustration. Would you talk about what I know a bit because you know I've had the uh, the chance to try to coordinate schedules with you. Just talk about what what did your spring look like, and then how how is that sort of you know an indication of what you do with your life and time? Yeah, that's a great way to enter into a conversation. I split my time between Pasadena, where I'm involved in. Um, uh, directing a program at uh, Fuller Seminary uh, as part of Brand Center. I am the director of Culture Care Initiative, and um, I what what that means is I basically paint um, there in the studio, and I mentor uh, selected students. And so I spend bulk of my time between January and April doing exactly that. And I am back in Princeton after Easter and I moved my operation or uh, my uh, painting, out of my studio comes everything else. So uh, my writing, um, any any kind of uh, lectures or uh, everything flows out of my studio work. So it's it's very important to have a central place where I'm focused at. And so 
with, between January and April, it's in Pasadena, and after that, it's Princeton, and I'm back in my home house in Princeton, um, a beautiful uh, late May here uh, today. It can be nomadic journey, journey of getting myself involved in so many different things, but I, I try to stay put and... Uh, um, and get get some uh, work in the studio. Yeah, it seems like given that the work that you create is so contemplative, is there a tension for you between traveling back and forth between places and actually getting in the spot where you can make the kind of art that you make? Right. Um, I, I think once you have your studio established, um, it's easy to lock yourself into that, even if you're traveling. I currently have a show exhibit in Israel, and that has taken me to Israel. Uh, it will turn out to be three times in the last year and a half. Even if I'm doing that, if I know that, you know, back in my studio, things are happening, um, and I am centrally located myself in that creative activity, it seems to be, I seem to be able to carry that contemplative spirit into my travels. So I, I definitely try to do that. So in searching around your writing or actually being already familiar with your writing through the intriguing avenue of, I believe a colleague of yours, Bruce Herman, was a real uh, inspiration to me is when I was doing art as an undergraduate, he came through and had a sh- an installation and did some artist lectures that were pretty mind-blowing for me as a 21-year-old. Uh, but through him engaging your writing, I was really fascinated by a short piece that you have on how to see your work and what it means to actually see. <laughs> you even put it in quotation marks, your paintings. Just if, when you think of... I'm going to call it artistic vision um, and what it means to see a work. Uh, what are some of the first things that you think of when you think of the way that an artist sees and you think of the way that we need to see in order to be able uh, to engage their work? Thank you for asking that. I, I just did an artist talk at Waterfall Magic Gallery in New York uh, where um, I one of my large pieces that I did in Pasadena is called Transfiguration. It's a 33-feet-long painting, uh, a triptych, uh, based on my journey into Israel and I, having uh, that be shown at Waterfall Mansion Gallery. It's on East 80th Street um, in New York. And uh, I was telling the audience there uh, that it takes about 20 minutes for your eyes to adjust uh, to actually see my work, and um, that's partly because of the refractive nature or the layering that I do using pulverized minerals and and mineral pigments uh, uh, are not the uh, acrylic uh, the colors that simply you know you you paint on a layer of orange and you have orange um, minerals like malachite or azurite, even though blue-green tone can be layered to create literary uh, prismatic refractions. So the depth uh, involved with the naked eye is remarkable, but we have learned not to use our eyes um, um, in that way. So it does take about 20 minutes for the senses, sensory input to begin to register. Um, your eyes uh, can see immediately, but your mind kind of shuts down and puts information into categories. So, so that <clears throat> that's part of my work is to hopefully help people to slow down um, and experience um, certainly my own paintings, but really it leads to life itself. Um, I often find that people, after <clears throat> slowing down and really beholding something, whether it be my paintings or a flower that you're gazing upon, or um, even in worship, that becomes a uh, kind of a shortened version of experiencing God. So I try to help 
guide people through that. Yeah, I mean, the ability to slow, to see, to engage what is in front of you uh, is phenomenally important in engaging art. But as you just said, it, as a human being, to have that capacity to engage God, your own story, the world around you, uh, it, it strikes me as being something that people are fundamentally just ill-equipped for and desperately needing. What are some things that you, that you offer that you, that you challenge people, um, to, and ways to grow in that? Right. So, you know, I, I think we, uh, recently discovered this, uh, movement of slow food and, you know, the idea that if you grow your own lettuce, it tastes better. <laughs> um, and, and furthermore, you know what goes into it. Um, it's the same idea with um, everything else in life. I, I make my own pain, you know, and, and I layer them very carefully, often over paper or silk, and it takes a long time for that layering to uh, dry and to develop. So um, I call it slow art. And, um, and, and, and anything you do slowly and carefully, you, uh, you learn... Uh, the nuances of what the materials can give you and uh, even you can taste that, you know, if, you, uh, if you're talking about food or wine or whatever. And, and so uh, it, it's one of the most rehumanizing things you can do is, is to learn a craft of some kind or um, learn to experience by seeing, by listening, by tasting um, you know, this, this whole idea of, um, we did in such a virtual time that the idea to kind of restore some of the, um, experiential, um, realities, which is so far more complicated than we think, um, because it's not information based. It, it, uh, it, and, and basically we're, we've truncated our, uh, way that we understand the world uh, by assuming that you know we can read something on Twitter and it's you know it, it, it's true and um, so that it's it's an antidote to so so much of what we struggle in culture today and um, as as human beings um, we we long for that fully um, human experience. I'm curious in your story. Uh, developing sort of this framework or developing this idea of slow art to rehumanize. Is this a posture that you were born with or were there key moments that sort of, sh that sort of shifted the way that you wanted to create and that you wanted right, to engage objects? I, I think it's uh, both nature and nurture. I, I grew up in uh, both in U.S. and in Japan. In Japan, I lived in Kamakura, which is a 12th century historic town. And Japanese culture is very much uh, integrated culture that values contemplative uh, way of uh, refining uh, experiences. So so I must have picked up on that, but but it's also, uh, on the other hand, you know, modern Japan is just as fast or even faster than uh, any any city, and they, they struggle with this disembodied sense of reality. Um, and, and so it's a fascinating uh, journey um, that I've been on. Um, so I assume it's partly because of that, but it, it could be the way I am, just... As an artist, I, I, I have always been um, valued um, this taking something in fully and, um, and then, you know, after realizing that this is how God wired me particularly, um, I, I began to understand that as a, as a very important uh, facet of my journey, um, uh, life and faith, uh, integrated and, and I'm, I'm continuing to discover that. Um, so I, I, I think it's a little bit of both, um, of my upbringing, uh, my upbringing and people that I, I've been influenced by, 
um, and, and, and even how uh, I understand um, God to operate in the world. That's phenomenal. It's, you know, it makes me think of, um, you know, you're talking about how this was developed in you and that it was part of your nature. And yet, I, it seems that there are people who wouldn't identify as artists who still need to cultivate the thing that is an artistic vision or the ability to see in the way that an artist sees. Are those separate for you? Or I'm wondering if a person listening were to say, wow, what an incredible way for an artist to engage the world. Uh, is it is there a distinction between being an artist and living with what I'm calling an artistic vision? Yeah, well, uh, definitely. I'm working on a new series of, it probably turns out to be a new series of books because it's so expensive, but it's called Theology of Making. And the idea is that you look at um, theological principles from, uh, from the perspective of being an artist. And what I say in the book is, you know, that what, what may start out uh, with a conversation about an artist reading the Bible and realizing that God is the artist and and all of the um, eye-opening journey of realizing that the, uh, that we uh, we are created to be creative and you know God has made us uh, all uh, an artwork um, uh, masterpieces of, of God and. And, and all of that is, is, is really uh, a journey that every single person we are can take. Into, you know, an artist is very specific area of expertise and, and, you know, we have to nurture that and cultivate that. Um, but it's really for the service of everybody else to help people to see and help people to experience beauty, um, both you know, seeing the, the burning bushes everywhere, uh, the mystery of God's presence in the world. And, uh, you know, we tend to just walk by them without even realizing that God is speaking uh, to us. It's funny, I heard you in an interview describe your process as an artist of reading the Old Testament and reading sections that most of us tend to sort of skip over, like the construction of the temple and the development of the priestly garb, but that for you, it was just sort of pulsating on the page because what becomes visible is that not only is God a creator, but it isn't always in an just abstract at all. It becomes incarnate and has great care over real physical things. I wonder, as we're saying, you know, for everyone to live this way, in your life, what are some of the practices that most contribute to your ability to see this way uh, beyond the uh, time intensive, I believe it's Nihonga is the painting style. Um, but you have this way of art that requires this from you. What other practices in your life help preserve and develop this way of seeing? Yeah, yeah it's a great question. I, I just spent a Memorial Day weekend at a, a friend of mine uh, from the sound studio and, and another friend was recording, so I spent the entire weekend um, you know, being there and listening to this process and, and I think that's certainly part of experience of slowing down is to, um, you know, you you experience other people creating or being in an environment where there's a communal sense of value that is tied in with creativity and imagination. And, um, you know, I, my hope is that a local church can become that, but, my, you know, experience in churches may not be that, but it would really please the spirit, if we begin to see all of our creative act as essential to our um, communion with each other and communion with God, that God delights in his children being children and, um, and creating. 
Um, you know, all children are creative if they're given um, uh, protection and 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 nurture. So I I think of that, and I I, I wonder how much uh, we have lost that uh, in ourselves. And we wake up one day and realize, you know, we we have succeeded in everything in life, but you know, what do we actually create into the world? And that that question is something that I think about all the time, but um, it occurs to me that it's a, a very important question for the church, uh, church to ask, but also community to ask, uh, and, uh, and the nation to ask. Um, it's not an isolated um, thing to individuals. Yeah, I almost want to give our audience a moment to recover from the idea that part of what it means to be acting as the local church is to be living in a creative way is to engage our creative capacity because of the covering of the father. I just, that's, I'm sort of contemplating that in real time. Well, and there's something so good as well. I think in this day and age that is very individualistic, we can think of an artist as someone who stands apart. Um, and yet there's this implication, this responsibility as each person slows down and looks, looks around, they have, they have a responsibility to those around them. And that, that's a phenomenal commission. Yes. And you know, you see people who, uh, in the world, uh, doing what they do and whether they be athletes or CEO companies or, you know, um, a mother caring for a child, the person is absolutely attentive um, and present. And those are those are the most beautiful people, and um, and they they tend to have this ability to slow things down. You know, you you watch them do something in their expertise, or just just naturally they they have a way of bringing shalom into the world, and and that that level of uh, being present um, is, is an act of, uh, it, starts, it starts as an act of imagination, of being able to hold time as a precious moment that is, um, you know, is, is quickly passing by, but you, you can hold that moment um, as a human being. We've been given this ability to do that, to, to think of time in a completely different way, than the rest of creation, and and yeah, we don't cultivate that, right? We we end up um, rushing from you know this or that um, A to Z very as quickly and as efficiently as possible, and and as a result, we lost touch with this other sense of being and and being fully present, and and I I feel like. You know, it's not just in art, but it, it's also in life. Um, you, if you observe anybody doing anything excellently, um, there's a different sense of time um, attached to that. I love what you're saying. I just resonate with. It was actually just this year in our organization that we realized in trying to make decisions in favor of an attentive, contemplative life that actually gave us opportunities to turn our hearts toward God, it was going to require some sort of situational cues. And so we, like, it's funny when guests are coming through our office, if they happen to be at the right time, if they're there at 10 o'clock or 2 o'clock, they hear bells going out over the PA system just in the, you know, it's just an office building during which everybody stops what they're doing just to practice this thing, which is take 60 seconds to turn, attend to God with your heart and then sort of try to return aggressively to the present. And it, we've been doing it. You would think I would improve, but we've been doing it all year now. And it's still drives me crazy when I am in the middle of something and the bells go off. I just, my neck hairs rise. Right, right. But, well, yeah, you know, the clock was invented by medieval monks 
to remind them to pray. <laughs> how, <laughs> how far we have come. <laughs> yeah, so we, yeah, exactly. We, we're driven by this, you know, the, the clock and watches, but, but really it's, it's there to remind us to pray. You know, sometimes I'm thinking of just the steps of what you're describing and how sometimes it's easier to point to things that uh, prevent the ability to sort of be wholehearted in the present moment, you know, and we'll talk sort of in our circle, try to be really direct about what are you giving access to your life? Do you allow your technology to have access to you all the time? And what would it mean to make decisions about, I know, I can feel my audience right now going, here you go again, Blaine. Well, you welcome, you guys. Um, but what would it look like to change some of the material things in your world to, to cultivate, as I love that word you use, this ability to develop o- slowly over time, this ability to see and be in wonder. I wonder if there are any practices or it wouldn't have to be a practice. Um, but if there were things that, are there just key things that prevent this for a person? Or if you were to offer a couple things for someone thinking about their own life that might be getting in the way, whether practices or just realities of our culture, it's because it's sometimes easier to stop doing things than to pick up new disciplines. Are there any things that would be on your list of watch out for the effects of X on your ability to see, on your heart? It's not, technology is a tool, and it's how we use it and how we create into it. Um, so you, you can have a Facebook or Twitter account, and you, you know it, it certainly is designed to put you in the mind of a consumer, right? And, and that's how they make marketing work. But you can resist against that and start creating into it. Um, so I, I, I use, in, in a sense, all my social media as a platform to share creativity, imagination, and this, this presence that I experience, you know, seeing beauty in life in surprising places or um, places that I didn't expect. I, I, I use social media to share that moment with people um, to prevent me from being just a consumer of media to creator of something uh, generative into the world. And I think if everybody did this, you know, the social media scene would completely change. Um, and even like 10, if 10% of the people practice um, regularly that, you know, I, I'm going to put my Facebook on not, not to, you know, rant about my what I want, you know, I'm so afraid of, but, but instead create something into it, um, you know, just use it as a way to share that life is sort of mystery um, and I'm discovering new things today that um, is, you know, surprising and wonderful and they're all burning bushes all about me and, and then it becomes a way to engage with the world that way. Uh, of course, you know, not everything can be that way. You know, <laughs> you end up being marketed to uh, whatever you're doing. But, you know, ultimately what the marketers, right? I, I, I know some really good advertising executives and what they say is like, they, they're actually trying to find, you know, this contemplative, magical reality too, because that's what people are starving for, right? So they, they twist it and perhaps make an idol out of something. And, you know, we, we have to always twist back what, <laughs> what people create into idols, but, you know, we do it ourselves. You know, the whole discipline can, can be about our journey uh, and, and not, not being afraid to, to do that. And, and certainly part of it is a discipline of fasting from something all the time, uh, which helps us to reorient our focus. Uh, and, you know, do, doing everything 
with, with our hands, whether it be crafts or gardening or, you know, um, just sports or, you know, it, it, it really does help you um, when you reconnect yourself with your body and, and you learn again that, you know, um, all, all knowledge is from the body up into the brain. It's not the other way around. Um, and, you know, true knowledge is bottom up and um, it, it, it comes from a sensory experience, certainly in, into our brains. And so, so that, that, that's really important to cultivate and, and appreciate and grow into. Um, so, you know, everything is a tool to, uh, for generative uh, creativity. I'm excited because this relates, and I didn't expect to, with a question that I wanted to ask you later, but what you've just described in the shift of posture from treating a medium as a consumer versus treating a medium as a creator and what that will do for a person, it it reminds me of, I think it was an interview that you were talking about what would it mean for artists to seek each other and rather than retreating and observing to actually be sort of reaching out to each other with their art. And it seems like there is, as you say, it's about how you use it. There's a technological uh, corollary of reaching out for each other. And in that same point, um, you write about asking a question of, what if artists could give themselves away? And it seems like the question can be expanded to, what if people with their creative capacity, which each person has, could give themselves away? And so I, and it made me want to ask, what do you mean when you talk about that giving yourself away as a way of seeking each other? What does it mean for an artist to give themselves away? Right, and you know, we have been taught that art is self-expression. It's this individualistic act of making something to the world with your ego, you know. And I, I find that as a, as an artist, it could be not very helpful. Uh, and and it turns out that it's it's just historically inaccurate. It, you know, you you look at all great works of art, and they're they come out of a communal uh, setting. They come out of um, uh, a time when you know people were creating all in the same place, you know, same same, same city or same time. And um, there's these influences, cross pollination that are happening. And, and I can't see art in in, in just individualistic terms. And so this idea of self-expression as a goal, um, it, it seems to me is, is definitely tainted by this um, individualized sphere of you know, self-expression. And art needs to be liberated into um, the communal, uh, communal communication, you know, the, 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 to commune, it's not um, something that can be done obviously alone. Really, all artists are writing for a future of some kind, whether it be you know exhibit coming up or uh, like in the case of Emily Dickinson. I I think she believed that her time was not ready for her work, and there will come a time when the world will want to read her poems and she prepared them for such a time as that and um, so you know the, the artists can think very differently about time than perhaps you know normal <laughs> conversation but but nevertheless it, it, it's all about uh, giving yourself away in, in some sense as a, um, to take the gift that you have been given, um, and uh, and be abundantly generous with, with that, um, and those are the ways that we, I think, all great art 
resides in that territory and you know we can have a conversation about how to successfully manage a career to you know how, how do you make it as an artist kind of a conversation but um, really it, it, it is all about the integrity of what we do um, toward the future that in some ways we create that is probably the central core uh, of what we need to be discussing is you know uh, not about the market not, you know, not about what what sells um, but you know who are we and what, what is at the core of our being and how do we um, live in that space and and be true to ourselves? And, and since everybody's made unique by our creator, everybody will have something to say that is that is uniquely theirs and so important for all of us to hear. That's kind of the opposite of the Darwinian universe in which you beat out the others and you know those with the biggest ego win. Ultimately, that's not how. Uh, communication works. It's never crossed my mind what you just said about Emily Dickinson and having a vision of the future that would actually allow a person to believe that their work was for a future time they would never see and yet to do it anyway. The level of real generosity and sort of (laughs) integrity of risk is blowing my mind right now. When you talk about community and you mentioned there are sort of these points of the future vision and then creating out of the present and create or or creating out of a recognition of the conditions of the communal and communing it brings this uh dimension into the conversation of art which i know you've written about quite a bit, spoken on, which is the relationship between beauty and the broken conditions of the world, even going so far as, um, you know, you writing that it's an awareness of broken conditions that causes us to create beauty. Um, my, My question is as simple as, what is, where does that come from for you? And sort of could you talk about in this element of the artist that is being attentive to the present? That means being attentive uh, to quite a bit of the failure of the present to live up uh, to the expectations of future wholeness. What is it in that that causes a person or causes you specifically to create beauty out of that? Thank you comes from multi-directions and I'm not sure, you know, to pinpoint the location of exactly where it came from, but rather it's a confluence of so many um, factors, including uh, scripture and how I tend to so appreciate uh, God's word that our brokenness is our entry point into what God is describing. And Christ uh, dying on the cross is um, not only an act of um, sacrifice for us, but it, it is an invitation to reveal all that we are, all, all that we struggle with, all that we cannot be, or, you know, the, the, the moment we try to be the person that we want to be, we can't. And, um, and that's precisely the point through which the spirit will uh, enter into our journey and make us not, not only this passive recipient of grace, but this active um, participant of grace being in the world. And, um, and as an artist, that is such an act of creativity and imagination. <laughs> Um, that God has given us um, this journey of hope, um, even though we might be facing an abyss in front of us, um, that we realize that in our despair, we, we, we still have wings, and um, we, it, it surprises us um, that um, we, we are actually meant to fly, you know, <laughs> and, and we don't 
have to live in the scarcity model of, of, of what seems like is in front of us. Um, but that there's abundance, uh, abundance of creation, but also the abundance of new creation flowing into that fissures of brokenness that we are experiencing right now. And if that's the case, then everything is meaningful. Um, it doesn't make it easier. It, it makes everything meaningful as, as a point of uh, what I call Genesis moment. You know, every moment is a Genesis moment. It doesn't, doesn't matter what happened today or yesterday or a few months ago or a year ago or something maybe traumatic or catastrophic happened. And we have to acknowledge those things as real and reshaping of who we are. But it doesn't matter what you face. Um, right now is, is a new moment. We can choose to journey into the future um, together as God has invited us to. Um, or we can live in the past. And I, I think as an artist, I, I'm one of those few people, few people who have an inclination to project into the future rather than live in the past. And I want to use the past as a way to learn and to grow. Um, and I, I want to use the past certainly as a way to uh, create because, you know, it's these people that has given me ideas and even materials, uh, you know, hold this sense of time on the past. And then I'm being a steward of that in, to create something for the future. And so that, that kind of transmutation is very exciting to me, uh, that every moment has that potential. And, and so, you know, what I practice in the studio, this daily act of discipline, of beholding and then creating uh, can translate into any moment. And, and so I, I try to do that. It, it's not always easy, but um, it, it's a path that I think God uniquely guides us into. And, and so this, you know, this is very important for all of us to practice because, it, you know, as I said, if 10% of the, uh, of the world is practicing and living in this way, the world will be a completely different place. Um, it will be driven by creativity and imagination, hope uh, for the future rather than despair and polarized, you know, culture wars and and limited resource battles that we, we think we have to fight and beating out the other and winning at all costs. And all of that is part of life. But if 10% of people practice otherwise, um, they they will not be able to dominate that conversation here because there'll be pockets of people who are literally living generatively and you know creating a different world and that world is awfully attractive <laughs> because it's about the world of abundance and, and by the way Jesus happened to invoke that um, as he preach the Sermon on the Mount, he is standing on the, you know, the eastern edge of Seal Gallery, which is the most abundant area of, of Israel. And, you know, he's invoking creation. And I think he was the kingdom conversation that he's having with us is, is really about invoking creation's abundance of creation and invoking the new creation. Wow. We'll just pause that and play that again so that I can get it. Um, it's fascinating what you're saying because I'm just so intrigued. There seems to be the assumption built in that turning your heart uh, to the present, cultivating your ability to see the creative possibility of God in your moment, slowing down, being aware of your community, all of these things will actually sort of expand a, per a person's imagination or expand a person's wonder rather than, uh, you know, there's the one avenue where being willing to engage the broken 
conditions of the world, it could be assumed that that actually makes a person sort of disillusioned that uh, trying to be present and trying to be contemplative just makes them um, frustrated. And I, I can even, I think of personal friends with a great heart for the moment, but who happen to be in a season where the results of that aren't further wonder and they aren't further imagination. I'm wondering, what does this look like, this capacity you've been describing for someone whose moment feels dark or for someone sort of whose uh, season or whatever it is that they are in doesn't seem to cultivate imagination. Their, their contemplation of trying to be attentive to the world actually means pain for a while. Is that normal? Absolutely. And, and those of us who are willing to journey deep um, will often end up carrying um, you know, sorrows of the world with us and, and it, it costs us greatly. And that, that's a reality that I, I can't, I have to say is true. And that journey, you know, once you realize that that, that is part of the creative journey, we can begin to expect that as creative communities uh, and, and even encourage each other to you know, not not to go blindly into them, um, but with intentionality and certainly with our brothers and sisters on our side journeying with us into those moments. And I have found that whether that you know the, this community that we speak of does not have to be all artists, you know. In fact, it, it better not be. Um, you know, <laughs> it needs to be as diverse as you can get because it, you know God's wisdom is flowing through all people. If we isolate ourselves in some way and homogenize our communities, we lose that wisdom and. And I'm, I'm talking about non-Christians, you know, I'm talking about people outside of the church, people who we want to avoid. Even they have been given thing to open eyes and we can learn from. And, and it's really, to me, part of this conversation and there are moments when I wish things were simpler, but, but, but I, at, at the same time, I, I realize that there, the things that I value the most are uh, sometimes, you know, things that I had no control over. I, 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 I would say I was even traumatized by, um, and yet God carried me through those moments into uh, a new place. And, um, you know, my art is all about that, and my writings about that. It, it, it seems to be um, part of the mix of uh, what we call reality. You know, we we tend to try to fix things when we live in broken times, and and that's a natural way that we want to address the problems of the world. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. But really, when it comes to fundamental issues that we uh, responding or, you know, we, we, we are finding ourselves alienated from that fundamental reality is not something you can fix. It's something that you can be aware of and live into and create into. Um, and I, I've been thinking about how, you know, Christian gospel has become what I call like a plumbing theology. You know, just, you just go to church and they give you new tools to fix your pipes and you go home and you, you say hallelujah and you fix your pipes and you tell your neighbor how to fix the pipes and you, you know, you go back to church and they give you new tools and, and you're doing this, right? Right. At, at no time does, does anybody discuss like why we're fixing the pipes what's flowing through the pipe and what, why we're fixing that. <laughs> um, and when we lift our gazes from 
trying to fix the world to understanding that, oh my goodness, the Holy Spirit is flowing through those pipes and it's, it's going to rejuvenate us and our hearts, our creative hearts, to become a child of God again. And then, you know, the, the blood of Christ is flowing through the pipes and it's eating us. And, and then the new wine is, you know, flowing out of the pipes into new creation. And that's why the pipes exist. That's a different mindset with, to, to face the issues. You know, the, the pipes may be broken and we have to fix it. But it's, it's a different way of approaching the same problem. And as, as I said, we may not be able to fix completely what is broken. Um, but when you have a different mindset about it, when you know that the future is true, you know, and, and that is only true because God said, you know, this is what's going to happen, then, then our journey becomes one of being humbled by the realities of brokenness and death all around us, but in, in some ways understanding that that is a, also a beginning of something else. And we, we don't have to fret or fear um, because, you know, this is all part of how, why Jesus came in the first place. And, and we can live confidently, even though, you know, everything around us seems so off and against the very thing we believe. Um, but that's, that's precisely how the Bible is written. It's to those people who recognize that. So you can't really read a Bible or read anything worthwhile, I don't think, without having that kind of understanding that, um, you know, the brokenness is real. Um, we, can't, we cannot fix it uh, in, in some sense, but, but on, on the other hand, there, there are things that we can, can do. Um, and, uh, you know, we have individually been given some gifts to um, exercise and, and to create into uh, not just fixing the pipes, but to celebrate what is what is to come. Man, I want to give you a witness. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> wow, Amen is right. Hearing some of the language that you employ, even someone listening to this podcast, uh, these three concepts come up again and again around the gospel and around the power of Jesus in the world and the generative possibilities of God. And those three words that I've even heard in this conversation are love, reality, and imagination. They seem to come up again and again. And um, I just, it's sort of a big question, but could you talk about how love, reality, and imagination relate? You know, culture care, what I call culture care, is a manifestation of the fruit of the spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5, and that's love. You know, and everything else after that is part of love. You know, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and goodness and self-control. All of that flows out of love and defines how we are to encounter the world as Christ followers. But when we, when we look at our culture, it, it's nothing but that. You know, instead of love, we're fighting culture wars. You know, instead of peace, we're, we're creating strife and conflict and building walls, you know, and, and, and so on and so forth, right? So, so, it, it, so we do not see what we, what we think we believe out into the world. So we have to ask ourselves why, and, and, and it leads into the ne next word, reality. We do not see reality with a capital R. We see it as small. Uh, so, so we limit the possibility of this generative moment, and, and we don't believe that God can actually intervene. And, you know, we have to fight this battle all ourselves. This is a Darwinian battle. We have to pay, pay the rent and, you know, so forth. Now, I'm not saying those things are concerns, you know, that we shouldn't be thinking about. But I, I am saying, again, how you address those questions, how you um, try to solve the problem is, is ultimately dependent on a view of reality 
And if our view of reality is with capital R and capital you know, E or capital A, um, then it it just is full of life, um, potential abundance, possibilities, even though what we might be faced with is, is you know, we might be facing a really intractable reality um, that cannot be fixed. But how you approach that can be can be different, and that is really imagination. I mean that that, and we think of imagination as well. You're imagining things, you know. It's like fantasy, but but really, the Bible is all about sacred imagination. I mean, it's it's just all about that. And so from the get go, we're we're talking about imagination, right? Of God, right? This this to create when God did not have to create at all, but because God is love, God being all-sufficient and yet wanting to dance with God's creation and, mm. and ultimately, right, that we were chosen to be part of this grand scheme, this grand narrative of gratuitous love that flows into the universe. And this is just incredible stuff. Like, how do we see ourselves as this is capital R stuff, you know, this is capital L, the capital life. There, there's just fullness of everything and, and just extravagant wastefulness even, you know, if I could use that word, of God creating when God did not have to. It's not just about uh, utility and pragmatics it's just play. <laughs> and and so imagination in that very place is the core of creation. And God has given us the same ability to imagine, you know, Adam naming the animals in Genesis 2. Use your imagination and identify what you see in front of you. And through that act of naming the animals, Adam discovers that he is all alone and he needs a mate. So all of that is imagination being passed down to us. And we are, even in Eden, before the fall, we are exercising that into the world. And, you know, after, after the fall, we, we go into this cycle of brokenness and dysfunction. And all the strife, all the limited resource stuff comes in and, you know, we, we can't avoid it. But what Christ does on the hill of Bethany to spend time, you know, as he's going to the grave to resurrect Lazarus, right? He, he stops and he wastes time with Mary to weep. Mm. Jesus wept, jumped. John 11 35 is fundamentally to me the center point of how Christ brought that gratuitous love into the world that through those years this greater reality just you know blows up because we we're not expecting that you know Christ came to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead that was his purpose so why didn't he just take Mary by the hand and say you have little faith come with me I'm going to show you God's power he doesn't do that. He wastes time weeping because Mary is upset and angry. She misses her brother. And all those things, God's presence is fully wrapped up in this mystery of gratuity. And, and we don't, you know, we, we, we lost uh, vision for that. So this, you know, artists are the types that kind of pause and realize, oh my goodness, that is not what's supposed to happen. And God is present in those mysterious moments and, you know, when it doesn't make sense and um, when you are angry and, and despondent, Jesus is present with his tears. And to me, that's like the beginning point of my art. You know, I literally pretend like I'm painting Jesus' tears because I use water-based materials and all that, but you know, it's, it's really a discipline, spiritual discipline, I guess, that I practice every day in the studio. 
and to remind myself that, you know, God doesn't need any of this. But, you know, isn't it amazing <laughs> that God has chosen to create and to create me and to create these beautiful flowers that I'm, you know, looking at and, and people that will see these. And I mean, it just, it just opens up all sorts of magical <laughs> thoughts of this greater reality. And, uh, you know, and I, I think it, it, it has, I, I, yeah, I do think art is related to love in that sense, the greater love. Um, because art is one of the ways that we can see the manifestation of communication that go beyond the utilitarian pragmatism. That you know, we, you don't. Art is absolutely useless. <laughs> but it's in the same way that Christ's tears were useless. It, it's just that moment when when there's this extravagant wastefulness. But the full presence of the mystery of God breaking through into the into the world, and that's why art, music, poetry, you know, dance, that's where things happen. And I think Mary's reaction to that moment, what she intuited, is played out in John 12 when she goes and grabs the wedding perfume and breaks it open to anoint Jesus. Because she had intuited more than just thank you for raising my brother. <laughs> she intuited something about the impending reality of sacrifice. And so this is all tied in, you know, this sacrifice, trauma, tears, brokenness, beauty. Um, those passages really speak about those things comprehensive um, in integrated ways. And it, it, to me, the aroma of the gospel is what we should be driven by. It's not the information of the gospel. It's not the knowledge that, you know, you receive Christ and you can go to heaven. Well, that's, yes, part of the message, but that's not why Christ came. You know, Christ came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And, and that means that word save is not so we can go to heaven. It, it, it's, to, it's to renew the universe into this whole new creation. And so it's, it's a creative word. It's a generative word. It's, it's, it's not, you know, fixing the world so it can be restored to Eden. It's, it's, it's moving the world into a whole new a paradigm, and um, so it, it's exciting stuff. And uh, so those those three words, I uh, I, I love it. Uh, I appreciate. It. Oh my goodness! When I think of paradigm, out of what you were saying, it, when I think of the fact that you've just been gesturing towards that, what looks like waste might actually be part of the core of the story and the place where. God himself is living with his abundance is something that could really reframe uh, much of what I do with my time. You know, uh, if you read any of Tom Wright, uh, N.T. Wright writing, um, uh, the best book to begin is Surprised by Hope. But he identifies mercy and beauty as two elements of a life that are absolutely not needed by the utilitarian world. And yet, there are the two elements that God will break through into the world. Um, precisely because, you know, mercy is wasting time, right, to, to survive. Uh, beauty is wasting time. If you, you know, why spend money on art if you can't pay rent? But the, those, those are things that require faith. And when you actually exercise the little mustard seed of faith, a whole new world opens up, and this is this is my life, um, and it's, it's it's true. God God is so fully present, as you noted just now, um, in in the in the places where we consider to be wasteful or useless, or you know, holding a 
you know, a child who who is severely handicapped, you know, these things don't make sense in, in the Darwinian universe. But that is the most beautiful moment that God can break through into the world to create a, a new world. Yeah, it's absolutely truly, um, in a positive sense, mind-blowing in reframing. I think that this is one that I am personally really excited to listen to. Again, Mako, it's been such a gift to have the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you for taking time to have this conversation with us today. It's fine, and I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you, and uh, thank you for inviting me.